Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. Also, uh, usually we get this guy all the way over in the U.S., so we have to Skype him in. But today he is in the flesh, in the studio. We've got Che Ting Ye of Kanagalan Media. Good to have you. Oh, it's good to be here. And uh, representing another online media platform today, uh, we've got Brian Hugh of New Blue Magazine. Brian, good to have you back on. Thanks for having me. On the show today, those cross-strait agreement oversight bills are slowly inching their way through the legislative yuan. If you don't know what we're talking about there, you will in just a second. Then coming up right after that, we just hit the three-year anniversary of the Sunflower Movement. And we've got a quick interview with one of the movement's prominent figures, Chun Wei Ting. Uh, so we'll be listening to that in just a bit as well. Then in the second half, one government official set off a debate on policing practices in Taiwan after he was detained and asked for ID at the Taipei bus station. Uh, we're going to jump on into that debate ourselves. And also in the second half, uh, sort of another anniversary to take a look at. It's been just about a year since we saw a massive fish die-off right off the coast of central Vietnam. Taiwan's own Formosa Plastics Group has accepted responsibility for the incident, but the fish are still dying and many questions remain. We speak to a journalist covering the story to get the latest. But let's start with that cross-strait oversight bill. It's actually been kind of a long time since uh, this particular phrase has been in the news. So I suspect for a lot of our listeners, that's just going to sound like a jumble of words there. Uh, but this is, of course, all going back to 2014, the heady days of 2014. Uh, as many of our listeners will, of course, remember, the Sunflower Movement was sparked by KMT efforts to pass an agreement with China, liberalizing trade and services. So that's how you got hundreds of students storming into the main chamber on the legislative UN and occupying it for nearly a month. How did you get them out? Well, their main demand was the passage of some kind of law that would provide more oversight to future deals negotiated with China, whether that oversight comes from the legislative yuan uh, or possibly civic groups. So they got that key demand, they left the building, and the rest is history. By which I mean, nothing happened. Uh, we still don't have that bill. Of course, right now, uh, it doesn't much matter because cross-strait relations, being what they are, uh, we're not getting any deals with China anyway. Uh, but many have been a little frustrated by President Tsai Ing-wen and the DPP for placing such a low priority on this legislation. Three years on, still haven't seen it, but Gavin, this was the week that it finally got its day in the legislative UN. Or two, two days. Two days, two days. Well, let's, let's call it half a day. day okay, um, half a day. For the sake of argument, I think... Got bogged down quickly. Half a day. If you put all the time together they actually spent there hoping to talk about it, and took that away from the time they hoped to talk about it, you'd probably end up with a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is, of course, a cross-strait agreement oversight bill, which, of course, all these students in the Sunflower Movement were calling for, the DPP was calling for, the KMT even tried to call for it a bit later, the NPP were calling for it, and the PFP were calling for it, and several individual lawmakers were also calling for it, because six of these bills have been submitted to the legislature, one from the KMT, one from the DPP, one from the PFP, one from the NPP, and two other bills from individuals. Namely, a couple of lawmakers have put their own bills in there. So there's a lot of different versions of this thing, and there's a lot of debate about what exactly, what form it should take. Well, there's lots of different versions, but there's also lots of different titles. Mm. And some of these titles have irked some people because they don't like the title. Yeah, it, 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 part of the reason that has been so hard to actually bring to debate within the legislature is people can't even agree on, on the, the wording, the on the naming. Thing. If you yeah. can't agree on the name of the damn thing, you've got to go all back to the drawing board, basically, anyway. Yeah. Yes, basically the Legislative Internal Administration Committee was the committee that was overseeing these talks this week, mm -hmm. or these arguments, these spat, or these disagreements we'll, this we'll week. We'll be generous. We'll, we'll be call generous. them talks. We'll call them talks. Okay. Debate. Yeah, That's there we go. Nice, we'll call it the debate. deliberative body, the Legislative Union. <laughs> debate. Heated debate. It would be. Anyway, the Internal Administration Committee was overseeing this, and it didn't get very far at all because certain parties wanted it to be debated at a committee level, other parties wanted it to go straight to the chamber during a plenary session in the legislature, and nothing was reached because they both couldn't agree where it would go, to a committee or a plenary session. So can't agree on the naming, can't, can't agree, agree on, on where, where you're even going to talk about it. Now, 
there was apparently there was certain lawmakers said, okay, we will debate it within the internal administration committee. So it will just sit in that one committee. Mm-hmm. Other lawmakers from other parties said, no, this should be debated at various committees, meaning that the Foreign Affairs and National Defence Committee would be invited, the Economics Committee would be invited, lots of committees would be invited to debate the legislation because of course it covers lots of things it covers cross-strait agreements cross-strait things so you've got the defense issue the security issue and the economics issue mm-hmm. they couldn't even agree on that really yeah. so it didn't really go anywhere right and there's, there's nothing more that uh, voters love more than really complicated legislative procedures so it was an exciting week for all of us and it didn't go anywhere but no one really said anything the KMT said we don't want this one the DPP said we don't want that one the MPP said we don't want any of them except ours and the PFP went well we'll have this one but can you change a word in the title and then we'll have it at a committee level Yeah. and then nothing else really happened really they all went home <laughs> there we go. So it got its uh, however many hours in the legislative UN. So and actually, one of the com- one of the one of the most level-headed. Here we go. I'll say level-headed comments about this was from the basically the governor of the Internal Administration Committee, William Tsang, who actually came out and said, "Look, you know, you've really got to get your act together, lawmakers, because basically this legislation is needed." You might not like China. You might love China. Whichever way it is, we do need this legislation because. Obviously, we do have to step up trade with China, and we can't do any trade with China in certain agreements, or the ECFA agreement being one of them, and the additions to that. Nothing can move on these until this oversight law is in place. Mm. And, of course, the oversight law is a law that, while the government can go out and seek agreements with China, any agreements that could be signed have to go to the legislature for approval first. Mm-hmm. And then they must adhere to the guidelines set out by the oversight law. Right. Uh, so let's actually pick up on that point, uh, just in terms of uh, the logic of this bill and why it was thought to be necessary. Brian, uh, mm-hmm. uh, kind of maybe you can help us out. Just thinking back to 2014 mm-hmm. and the sorts of trade agreements that protesters in the Sunflower Movement were concerned about, why was this sort of a bill a key demand and why was it thought that this would prevent uh, the sorts of agreements that they were worried about? Um, I mean, the key issue at hand is that, you know, trade agreements with China have always been controversial, but what this bill is intended theoretically to prevent is that these bills will not be passed without due discussion or contemplation of, you know, what the benefits or uh, the advantage or disadvantages would be to Taiwan. Um, for example, you know, the Sunflower Movement, that was provoked by the fact that the CSSTA was passed in 30 seconds without any discussion, um, mm-hmm. which was thought to be undemocratic. So in theory, this bill would prevent that. Um, and, you know, this was one of the main demands of the Sunflower Movement. And actually, both the KMT and the DPP agreed to it back then, because, you know, as a way to end the movement. Um, KMT Speaker Wang Jinping agreed that, you know, that he would also try to pass this. So that's why there are all these different versions of the bill. But, you know, it's, it's been an issue. It was an issue one year ago, actually, um, in April of last year, just before the Thai, uh, Thai administration took office. And, you know, that was two years after the Sunflower Movement. And now we're three years after the Sunflower Movement. And, you know, the issue has not been resolved. Right. And, well, and it's kind of interesting, the anger that's been stoked over this, because I think a lot of observers might say, well, if the main concern was that a pro-China government was going to jam through some pro-China trade deal, uh, you, you don't have the party that's seen as more pro-China, the KMT, in office anymore. They're not really uh, running the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, What you have instead is the DPP. So why can't you just trust the DPP to negotiate these deals in good faith? Why why do we still need all of this extra oversight? Mm. So, so, so what, what, what are you hearing on that front? I mean, the DPP has not really been... I mean, again, this was a huge demand, and, you know, the, the DPP rode to power on the wave of momentum after the Sunflower Movement. But the DPP has been kind of bad on the issue. I mean, you know, they didn't pass it last year, you know, right before when they came into office. Uh, you know, Ling Tran, the premier... Shortly before the Thai administration took office, even suggested that the Thai administration was in favor of pushing through the CSSTA, which is, you know, just a very strange and stupid thing to say, because, you know, that can only not work out well for you. Um, I mean, you know, the, as, as is expected, you know, the, 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 the laxness of the bill to the, you know, the different versions circulating, there's the KMT, the, the DPP, and the MPP version, and those are from the least strict to the most strict. And also, that's also, you know, the political spectrum of unification to independence, as well as, you know, from right to left. Um, but, you know, the DPP sticking out there in the center is really just kind of caught between both poles and not really knowing where to go. And it's not willing to even take a firmer stance on this, which is very strange to me. Mm. 
Right. And and when we talk about some of those stricter measures, we're talking about, you know, line by line review rather mm. than just like an up down vote mm. and just like uh, really the nitty gritty of how much consultation, who gets involved, is there going to be, you know, some public vote involved. So all of that stuff is on the table. Mm. Well, that was one of the issues, wasn't it? The line by line thing you mentioned there. Because, of course, the government want to push these bi- – well, the go- governments need these bills to go through in a timely manner because, of course, the other side might get a bit uppity and say you're delaying. But if you sign an agreement with China and it has to go to the legislator for a line-by-line review and mm-hmm. it's got 356 pages and 95 articles – Right. I mean, it could take months. Right. Three months. Mm-hmm. Well, and if we think about how trade ad- uh, agreements are dealt with in other countries, like in the U.S., for example, it's, you know, a, a treaty is signed at the executive level. It's then turned over to the Senate and they just get an up down vote. There's, there's nothing like a line by line sort of thing there. So, you know, this would be a heightened level of scrutiny as compared to trade deals in other countries. Uh, Ting, what's, you know, you, you're also somebody who uh, follows this sort of news. What's stuck out to you, both in the last three years and also in the last week, how this issue has been handled? So to me, I think the main question here is whether or not trade deals or any sort of agreement with China needs to be treated equally as treaties with other countries or have a um, higher level of scrutiny than treaties with other countries. So currently, um, because of the legal structure of treating the mainland area not as a former and not as a formal separate country, but as a you know a, a different area of this you know under the Republic of China framework, the scrutiny with um, that's on treaties with China is actually lower than on treaties with other countries. Mm. And so now the question is, well, do we bring it up to, so that's equal with treaties with other countries? Or, um, as some people argue, that while well, China is a special case, um, China has hostile intentions you know, against Taiwan, has political intentions you know, agenda with these trade deals, so it should have a higher level of scrutiny. Um, to me, I think this kind of illustrates a um, dilemma within the DPP. Right, so you have the fact that Brian mentioned um, DPP kind of came to power, you know, essentially crushed the KMT on this wave of, um, you know, sort of anti-China or um, the sentiment of okay, we need to be much more careful with China. Yet um, within the DPP, there are, um, you know, there are not few people, um, and I'm talking about especially local uh, authority, you know, sort of governors and commissioners who. You know, are looking to you know have some sort of trade with China for their constituents or for their industries, and so they're kind of stuck in this place where okay, we do need to have some sort of mechanism to pass these trade agreements with China or have some sort of agreement with China. But on the other hand, we can't um, you know basically turn our backs on you know these supporters, especially the younger voters who kind of expect more um, from the DPP or from the ruling party than. Um, you know, they might be able to give. And that was a lot, some of the, a lot of the controversy because a lot of the names of these bills were actually caused the controversy because they hinted that both sides were the same country or both sides were different countries or there was one side and there was one country in the other country's side type of thing, if that makes any sense. <laughs> right, so it really gets to the heart of some of these really difficult issues. Mm. I mean, the MPP's version is probably the one that would, which I, I think is unlikely to pass as a result, is, is the one that you know is more explicit in suggesting China is you know, a different country altogether, um, although there was some complication with the terminology there as well. Didn't but that, I, didn't that, didn't that, wasn't that one that hinted there is, there is one China and that's right. Taiwan is China, but in the China... But there are two, there are two China countries in one China. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a new formulation, um, in addition to all the other, you know, one country, two systems, whatever out there. But the, 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 going back to what Ting said, the, the fracture in the DPP, I mean, there is one version which is put forth by Umenu and the legislator. And that is quite interesting to me because, you know, on the DPP reversals on certain issues, she's put forth her own version of the bill, for example, on same-sex marriage. Because, you know, the DPP has abandoned a progressive demand it pushed for during campaigning for its highest election. But, you know, you know, Umenu seems to be trying to kind of still push for that demand. I mean, that definitely speaks to a split within the DPP. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, on that note, we're going to move past the legislation and onto the commemoration of the Sunflower Movement. Uh, Saturday was actually the day that marked three years since protesters uh, incensed, as we said, over the 
hastening passage of a service trade agreement with China, stormed the legislative yuan, occupying it for just shy of 23 days. About 100 rallied in front of the legislative yuan last Saturday to mark the occasion. Uh, So we're going to take this as an opportunity to reflect on the legacy of the movement three years on. Brian, uh, you, you'd be a good person to start uh, this reflection that we're going to do right here because uh, New Bloom, the publication that you helped found and now run, is kind of a, an offshoot of the Sunflower Movement. You were at the Sunflower Movement. You covered it. And the kind of work that you're doing now is, you know, kind of one of the many things that have, have come out of it. So just reflecting, uh, as uh, we have been so far, on the last three years or so, you know, what sticks out to you uh, as the main legacy of the Sunflower Movement so far? Mm, I mean, that's tough to say, because, you know, really, again, in, as, as we just went over with the cross-trade oversight bill, it's very hard to point to, you know, the thing in things in law that have actually addressed the concrete demand of the movement, which was, you know, stuff about cross-trade trade agreements. Um, but, you know, obviously, we've seen things such as the rise of the New Power Party, you know, the change in Taiwan's political landscape, and so forth. But, you know, really, it is a question, I think, three years down the line, again, how much lasting effect will this will this have? I mean, for example, what's really visible at the commemoration ceremony is the, the tension between the New Power Party and the DPP, or even within, you know, Taiwanese youth activists and their relation to the MPP, which was the only party after that emerged after the Sunflower Movement that actually enter legislature. So the cross-strait oversight bill is, is one issue, um, but also just the DPP, you know, failing to differentiate itself from the KMT in the eyes of, you know, the, of many of the, its supporters, um, not, only domestic, not only internationally, but also domestically on many fronts. Mm-hmm. I think the, the demand for change with that, that the DPP said would embrace, they've been quite, quite slow acting on this. And sometimes they're, I think what really rubbed activists wrong is that they took a very technocratic attitude towards trying to solving a lot of these, these issues. Um, and we'll have to see because, you know, the new power party will probably run up against the DPP quite soon. Um, for example, the DPP had a representative at this ceremony, but that representative left early, which, you know, m- you know, made, made the DPP open to the accusation that they just kind of embraced the movement and abandoned it. And, you know, obviously the KMT and the PFP, which, although they were invited, didn't show up. So, you know, the New Power Party was the only party that, that was there, actually, of any of the parties in the legislature. But, you know, even then, there's, there's some tension regarding people thinking the New Power Party could do more to actually, you know, protest the current actions of the DPP. Mm. Uh, Ting, what's your take? Um, so, to kind of take a uh, more of a macro view on this, um, when I remember when the Sunflower Movement happened, um, what was going through my head was, well, this is essentially a proto-revolution, right? Uh, I mean, can you imagine any other country where activists shut down the legislature, which is the embodiment of, you know, supposedly the embodiment of the the will of the people. And people were pretty right? blasé about this. I mean, like, oh, I guess there's people in the legislature now, okay. Right. I mean, can you imagine if this happened? I'm not even in the United States, but even, you know, in Ukraine, for example, if this happened, or if in, um, you know, in Bangladesh this happened. I mean, it would be pretty big news. It would be a really big turning point in the political history of any country where this happens, right? And to me, it's actually very interesting that what came out of it was, okay, you know what, we're just going to go back to the same electoral system, we're going going back to the same political process, and we're just going to run for office, or we're going to, um, you know, like create new civic groups, or, you know, create new, you know, discussion platforms, and, you know, kind of everything went back to normal kind of business as usual, in terms of a process kind of point of view, right? So obviously, the mom administration, you know, the KMT was badly beaten in the 2016 elections. But, you know, for something so big to have happened, you know, I don't think we're going to see something like this ever again in our lifetimes. Um, you know, for me, I kind of wonder if that's not to say, you know, is there is there room for change, you know, in the system itself, right? Because, you know, we're kind of arguing over the name of, you know, the the oversight bills and you know the you know the line by line review versus up and down vote but you know not i think a, not exactly revolutionary questions right i mean i i don't think that's something that you know to me i would say you know if i if i had experienced something so powerful as you know shutting down the government you know and then you know if you tell me two years you know three years later hey you know what's going to happen is we're going to be debating this bill in the same chambers that we were occupying I would be kind of like, you know what? I don't know if we this was all worth it. 
All right, so that's pretty interesting. In-studio guests uh, hitting a little bit of a skeptical note on the legacy of the Sunflower Movement. We're going to turn things over now to a very different perspective. Chun Wei Ting is one of the most recognizable faces on the Sunflower Movement. At the time, he was regarded as a leader. Him and Lin Fei Fan were both really the most recognizable faces of the movement on the nightly news every single evening while the occupation was going on. Uh, Brian, you actually had a little bit of a conversation with Wei Ting uh, very recently, and I think it's fair to say that in that conversation, Wei Ting found a lot more to be proud of in terms of the legacy of the Sunflower Movement over the last three years. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to you and Wei Ting now to hear his perspective on all this. So for listeners who might not know you, can you explain briefly your role in the Sunflower Movement and to what extent you see yourself as able to speak for it? And what, I was part of the leadership uh, of the movement. Uh, and at that time, and I and Lin Feifan was reported or regarded as a student movement leaders. But actually, uh, the movement was led by an organization that involved us of other uh, NGOs, and we are just uh, part of that. And so our responsibility is to um, uh, participate in decision-making and deliver the, de- the decisions we made. And so um, certainly I cannot represent and all the movement, but maybe I can uh, provide some uh, observations or opinions uh, as a member of the leadership. So what would you say the legacy of the Sunflower Movement has been three years down the line? Um, What have the lasting achievements of the movement been, and what do you think it hasn't actually accomplished? Yeah, I think uh, the first, uh, the most most important achievement of the movement would be that, uh, firstly, it suspended the uh, economic reunification strategies that held by CCP. And uh, we stopped the uh, political negotiation that held by Ma administration as well. Uh, so I think that earned more uh, international spaces and uh, protected our sovereignty for Taiwan. So, uh, and, and also I think we changed the attitude that U.S. held hold and toward Taiwan as well. Because, you know, before the movement, in the China and American joint communicate published by Obama and uh, Hu Jintao, uh, in that communicate, we can see that uh, the, US government, the U.S. government actually supported deepening the China and Taiwan's economic ties. And then they even uh, agreed that uh, uh, Taiwan as Hong Kong and uh, Tibet are the core interest of China, which is totally unacceptable. But after the movement, the U.S. government has had changed their position more neutral. So I think that is the, our first achievement. And, uh, and the second achievement of the movement is that uh, the movement had changed the politi- political uh, landscape in Taiwan. As we can see, uh, a DPP has uh, held... Uh, political power and had took office for almost one year and the KMT has lost had lost in both of uh, local and the national uh, elections and thus of reform has had begun for ex- had, uh, for example the uh, pen- uh, pension reforms and the tra- tra- transitional uh, justice reforms and judicial reforms and uh, uh, they try to give or enable people to uh, recall or referendum. All of this uh, uh, reform, I think that is a milestone of uh, the history of the Taiwanese democracy, democratized, democratization process since 1990s. So, uh, but, uh, but also we, we all know that all of these uh, reforms are not enough. So, uh, uh, for example, actually, uh, during the movement, uh, we not only uh, demand the sovereignty of Taiwan, but also we demand a, a left-leaning economic system as well. But as we can see, uh, in the past year, uh, DPP, the DPP government actually are more, uh, are, is a more right-leaning government or uh, regime. So uh, we do need a third force to oversee that, to demand more rights or power for uh, ordinary people. So uh, I think the 
accomp- I think the achievement that we uh, do not accomplish and we have to fight for it, continue to fight for it, is to build a real or a more strengthening uh, third force in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's good to get to the next question, which is how do you see the current state of Taiwanese activism then? For example, there are less numbers um, at activist events than there used to be. Do you think this is because the KMT just doesn't appear to be a threat anymore? Um, and do you think the movement as a whole has broken apart, or is there still organizing going on? I think uh, there's no doubt that generally, generally the young generation and young activists uh, uh, trust DPP far more than the KMT. Uh, so in the past year, I think lots of people are uh, ha- have uh, you know had an attitude uh, to you know wait and see what will a DPP government would do, but as time passed by, we can see that that's a, more and more uh, young generation decided to protest against DPP uh, on several issues. For example, uh, we can see that uh, lots of uh, Aborig- Aboriginal uh, groups are occupying the Catalan Catalan Boulevard for um, for almost one month and the last and thousands of people stand out stand out to uh, uh participate the uh, same sex marriage rallies and which is a huge number even compared to uh the rallies in under the ma administration so I think that uh there are there there were lots of other uh examples such as uh uh, the labor strike of Huahang uh, airplane uh, servants or other uh, labor strikes in the past year. So I think uh, uh, I think I have a more optimistic attitude on that because uh, not only all of these de- uh, demonstrations are still keeping go- keep going, keeping going, uh, but also there are lots of students are still uh, get involved into the uh, student movement group or clubs in not only universities, but also in high schools, and which is uh, unimaginable in the past. I think the atmosphere uh, has changed, and it cannot be reversed. Mm-hmm. I see. So do you think that activists then will, will continue to come into conflict with the DPP? Seeing as you know, it's three years after the Sunfire Movement, but also close to one year after the Tsai administration took office. Um, for example, you know, the cross-strait oversight bill, it wasn't one of the big demands of the Sunfire Movement, but the, the DPP has stalled on the issue. I think during the past year, we have seen that DPP had been uh, condemned as a betrayer on several issues, as I mentioned about above. Uh, uh, the DPP, uh, when when uh, during the election, Tsai, uh, the president Tsai, uh, you know, promised to protect the rights of the LGBT community, and uh, afterward, we can see that they held they held a more conservative attitude toward it, and um, uh, during the election or during the sunflower movement, they the DPP supported a more uh, restricted version of the cross trade oversight bill at that time. But now, uh, but afterward, uh, after they took the office, they took the legislative event, they uh, suggest, they introduced a more loose version of that, which is uh, unaccept- unacceptable for us. So I believe that uh, if uh, DPP still, uh, uh, DPP continue to ignore us, to ignore the, you know, the demands of people, they will face more, uh, you know, intense conflict in the future, in the near future. Mm. Okay, so because it's uh, also two and a half years after the Sunfire Movement, as it is, you know, currently three years after the Sunfire Movement, what do you think the potential for Taiwanese activists to influence Hong Kong activists and vice versa for Hong Kong activists to influence Taiwan? Um, what do you, like, what do you think that would be? Do you think that kind of cooperation has happened in the last few years? Yeah, I think the most significant phenomenon of both of the movements is that uh, the leaders of the movements had built their own political party in the past uh, maybe two or three years, and they and they had uh, took taken 
they have taken the seats in legislatures in the past year. And we can see that uh, uh, the Hong Kong's democristo and other uh, other pro-self-determination legislators had uh, had had held a forum with Taiwanese with Taiwan's New Power Party in uh, this year, and in that forum uh, they you know declare their they declare their position of self-determination or Taiwan independence direct, directly. So I think that is a new way to cooperate with each other. And in the civil society side, we can see that Lin Feifan had uh, 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 built a new organization with Huang, Zhou Xiaowang and other activists uh, from Malaysia or Philippines or Korea and Japan. And uh, all of this thing, and we can see that uh, Zhou Xiaowang, as Zhou Xiaowang did uh, in, past, in the past year, we can see Zhou Xiaowang had uh, uh, wrote lots of commentaries about Hong Kong on the mainstream media uh, in America, and uh, he went to America to lobby the, the, uh, the congressman and congresswoman to support Hong Kong. And at the same time, at the same time, we, uh, we Taiwanese, we, uh, me and Lin Feifan and, uh, and Lin, uh, Jun Lin, and our, you know, our partner of in, in the Sunflower Movement, we wrote a commentary on the Washington Post to state our position and the situation we faced during the incident of the traumatized call. You know, all of these things, I think that will be the next step that we should cooperate with each each other, we should uh, build our allies, ally, and to uh, let the let the international community uh, know that what we are facing and uh, we need their support. That will be a new way, an international way for us. All right, so that is one more perspective to throw in the mix right there. We are going to move on, but try to hit one more story before we come up on the break. Moving on now to military matters and Taiwan wants submarines. Uh, no one will sell their subs to Taiwan, so Taiwan is saying, screw you guys, we'll make our own. This is a story uh, with a lot of history to it. We've covered it on the show before, but that vague plan of, I guess we'll make some submarines, this week turned into... Yeah, 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 we could do this. Let's, uh, let's make some submarines. Here's what happened. Uh, CSBC Corporation and the Zhongshan Institute of Science and Technology signed a memorandum of understanding with the Navy to jointly build the subs over the next eight years, Gavin. Yeah, this was China Shipbuilding Corporation, and it teamed up with the state arms manufacturer, the Zhongshan Institute of Science and Technology, and the Navy, and of course the Ministry of National Defense. They signed a deal, and basically the MND turned around and said, OK, well, we've signed this deal, we want submarines in eight years, and we want them to be commissioned within ten years. Bit of a lofty order, really, isn't it? If you're making a laptop, I guess it's easy, isn't it? Making a submarine's a bit bigger, isn't it? Because, eh? of course, Taiwan does have to import shall we say, most of the technology, mm-hmm. even to make a hull. Mm. Of course, without a hull, you don't have a submarine, do you? kind of crucial. have a lot of computer bits and things floating around the water without <laughs> anything to put them in. That is not a submarine. So, that, that just makes computer soup. Yep. Anyway, the China Shipbuilding Corporation said that the the carry, the construction will be carried out in two phases. The first phase will be the design phase. The second phase will be the construction phase. Apparently some... They, six- they got the ordering right on that one. That's, did, uh, that's yeah. some good planning. Apparently 65 million US dollars has been put aside for the design phase, but nobody has said how much the construction phase is going to cost, mm-hmm. which is, of course is a bit worrying because certain defence experts, both here and in America, have questioned whether... Taiwan has earmarked enough money to build a submarine. Of course, you, one submarine is a bit worthless. You need at least ten, and that's what they're going to build. Basically, ten submarines. T- between eight and ten submarines, mm-hmm. and between eight and ten years, basically. And these are going to be diesel submarines. Well, they're electric diesel submarines. Yeah, mm-hmm. they can't build nuclear submarines here, obviously. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the problems we're getting from the states, because of course the US doesn't make diesel electric submarines right. or contra- conventional submarines anymore. Right, because this 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 sort of a submarine deal goes back to the Bush administration. They, Taiwan tried to buy submarines from yeah, the Bush but administration, then, but it kind of fell through. We couldn't be, even back then, because of course the US doesn't make conventional submarines, like I said. And to yeah. start making conventional submarines, you'd have to reopen an entire port mm-hmm. and a. Even in, in fact, that was one of the problems because the U.S. would have had to have built 
a special place to build the submarines for Taiwan in the first place. Yeah. Which... So a lot of complications there. A handful of submarines in eight to ten years. Uh, Ting, is this really what Taiwan's defense needs? Um, so what, from what I've heard, um, there's still sort of a lot of doubt as to whether or not these, you know, sort of big ticket, um, shall we say, sexy items like submarines um, really do fit the bill, right? Sexy submarines. <laughs> um, well, I mean, sexier than, say, unmanned, you know, underwater drones, right? Or, um, you know, smaller, you know, attack boats, um, mm-hmm. for example. Um, I mean, the, the whole idea for Taiwan's naval... Um, so defense, as I understand it, is one to prevent a um, amphibious landing from the PRC, right? And two to break any sort of blockade. Shall that you know should that happen? And you know, if we're talking about this kind of price tag for you know eight to ten or twelve submarines versus you know if you can spend the money elsewhere on something that's much smaller, much less costly. Um, and much more uh, dispensable, right? For example, um, would that have been better? Um, I think that's what I've been hearing a lot. Um, of course, there's also the issue of, you know, sort of indigenous technology, you know, uh, transfer, right? So you get, you know, you, there's industries with you know, shipbuilding and learn some of these skills and technologies from abroad. Um, whether or not that's, you know, worth the price tag, I am actually not sure. All right, and we are going to leave those questions right there because we are coming up on a break. When we return, we will be turning our attention over to events in Vietnam that don't make Taiwan look super good. Then we're heading back on into domestic politics to talk a bit about policing and whether or not one official was right to take to Facebook to complain about being stopped at the Taipei bus station. Gavin has some opinions on this. Let's see if we can get him to share them with us. And to close out the show, we've got a cool little bit of archaeology news to hit. We never get to hit archaeology news, but we do today, I guess. So please do stay tuned for all that and more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Brian Hugh, and Che Tingye. We're coming up on one year since a huge fish die-off took place off the coast of central Vietnam. Behind the deaths, Taiwan's own Formosa Plastics Group, which had set up a multi-billion dollar steel plant in the region. It's still unknown exactly what substance may have been leaked out or exactly what caused the disaster, But in June of last year, the company accepted responsibility and offered 500 million U.S. dollars in compensation. Now, one year on, victims say they have not received any of the promised relief funds. And just last week, Vietnamese migrant workers and human rights activists staged a protest here in Taipei, right in front of the Vietnam Economic and Cultural Office. To give us a view from Vietnam, I spoke recently with Trin Nguyen of Loa, a bi-monthly English-language podcast covering Vietnam news and current events. Here's what she had to say. Trin Nguyen, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So as we just mentioned, uh, there are protests in Taiwan that we just saw last week. There's also protests ongoing in Vietnam as well. There, it sounds like some of the big issues are compensation that has not been forthcoming to the victims, uh, as well as uh, I think many want to see Formosa Plastics leave Vietnam entirely. That's kind of the sense that uh, I'm getting from over here, but maybe you could expand on that a little bit more. What are the what are the main issues that the protesters seem to be con- concerned about? Well, yes, you're absolutely right. Largely, um, a lot of their grievances are um, are surrounding uh, compensation, right, or um, the lack of compensation that has been awarded to a lot of the fishermen. And in fact, the protests that you saw last week in Taiwan, there were several of those in the in the crowd that um, were 
were actually fishermen from Taiwan and had said that they had to leave um, because their livelihoods were essentially destroyed. So a large portion of this was, you know, again, the government not not providing um, any compensation, um, awarding that to the fishermen, to the farmers. So those have been have been grossly affected by the environmental disaster. And secondly, it's, it's also um, just a harsh, really harsh crackdown by the Vietnamese government, by the authorities, right? Um, extending from not only physical harassment, but also, you know, now beatings of protesters, um, forcibly removing protesters who are even attempting to submit um, litigation documents um, against Formosa Plastics Company. Um, so there's that, and you know, and and it's just the increase in the increase in the crackdown amongst even activists, supporters of these farmers, has really um, essentially galvanized solidarity amongst a lot of people in the region. Mm. Now we have seen over here in Taiwan over the last couple of weeks. Uh, some Taiwanese lawmakers taking on this issue, namely uh, the DPP's own uh, legislator Chun Man Lee, uh, she set up a hearing to look into uh, Formosa Plastics and what Taiwan's government could have done or maybe should do in the future to put more environmental controls on uh, Taiwanese companies around the world. Is is there a feeling over there that Taiwan could have done more uh, to rein in Formosa Plastics? Is is some of this anger being directed at uh, Taiwan itself? Yes, I, I definitely, I definitely think that um, it, it's it's being directed well, largely. I, I want to say it's largely being directed at the Taiwanese, um, at the Taiwanese company, at Formosa itself. But um, I, I think that the Vietnamese people understand that there there is some room to be able to move the Taiwanese government to to action. Unlike in Vietnam, right? It's it's very unlikely that you can protest or move the government to actually take action. That's not the case. Like you know, the government doesn't doesn't react to grievances or or mass protests of this size. I think the Vietnamese people recognize that, you know, Taiwan, um, however flawed the democracy is, but that but that there is, you know, it does respect um, uh, movement and it does respect it when when people are, are um, uh, you know, approaching lawmakers and, and trying to press for um, to address grievances. And also, I think there's there's a relationship between Taiwan and Vietnam here um, that the Vietnamese people really understand. You know, there are there are about um, quite a lot of number of Vietnamese migrant workers in Taiwan and and this large population of people who now live in Taiwan um, and who have have uh, have lived in Taiwan, but have also uh, worked there for years, understand how uh, they can essentially leverage their power and and this la- and this large number. And so that's why you've been able to get you know Taiwanese lawmakers to speak up is because there is a relationship between the Vietnamese people and in, in the Taiwanese government and and um, local organizations to get to get this moving along. Mm. Could you maybe give us a little bit of a sense of what this disaster is looking like on the ground now? Because my understanding, you know, a couple of key points to make is we still don't even really know what exactly caused this disaster. The company took responsibility for it, but they have not been forthcoming with any details about what exactly is uh, happening to cause these fish deaths. And the environment there is really still hasn't recovered at all. And the fishermen that have been relying uh, on the fish from this area are still, you know, waiting for the day when they can get back on the water. So maybe you could give us a little bit of a, a sense of how all of that is standing right now. Sure. I, I mean, this is definitely affecting, you know, close to 200,000 people. Um, like you said, a lot of a lot of fishermen, and it's not just you know strictly um, one or two provinces. It actually affects a, a huge swath of the region, right? Um, and and so that's not only in terms of trade and fishing and farming, but also tourism. Um, so it's it's affecting you know that whole entire space um, in that region. Um, I, I I definitely think it'll be many many years before we can really figure out what was the cause, and you know. Uh, for journalists and for researchers who are, are looking for answers, they haven't been able to get access. And so while the company Formosa has pledged uh, like $500 million to clean up and compensate people um, affected by this spill, um, you obviously that that has that that 
sort of compensation, that cleanup has to be in, in concerted action with the government. And we've seen really very little effort by the Vietnamese government to to even want to do this correctly. And in fact, you know, the whole entire area, um, being one of the poorest regions in Vietnam, were also affected by floods. And so it's 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 trouble on top of trouble on top of, you know, environmental disaster. And so it could, it could be a really, really long time before we see sort of any, um, you know, any new day for, for this fisherman. Mm. All right. And just to round things out, is there anything else that you think uh, the audience over here in Taiwan should know uh, about what is happening in this story? And, you know, if Taiwan is going to be a place where maybe some of these protests can play out, maybe some efforts can be made to get the government more involved. What do you think folks over here should know? I, I think the Taiwanese people should definitely know that um, the dissent that is taking place right now in in the region, and in, in, ter- in terms of th- those who are speaking out, um, that that is being very very harshly cracked down. And so, uh, I, I think there's in terms of there's uh, there's a number of protesters that have been arrested. Exactly, there's been a num- number of protests that have been arrested, um, and and they're probably going to face very long, you know, jail term sentences. And so I think there there is a chance here for the Taiwanese people and Taiwanese lawmakers to um, kind of do the rare thing by standing up because you, you don't see a lot of you know cross regional transnational collaboration taking place um in in you know ASEAN but also between Taiwan and and Vietnam but i think this is one of those times where um where the Vietnamese for, sorry for the Taiwanese people and the Taiwanese leaders to really sign in solidarity with the people who have been affected by this mm. all right we've been speaking with Trin Win of Loa Trin thanks so much thanks so much Keith Uh, Once again, imagine many of our listeners are podcast fans. So if you have any interest in what's happening in Vietnam these days, well, worth checking out the LOA podcast. That's L-O-A. You can find it on SoundCloud, iTunes, all the usual spots. Worth checking out. Up next, police state. It's a term we don't hear too much these days. But that is the very term that came to mind for Hakka Affairs Council Minister Lee Yong-de after he was stopped by police officers in Taipei and asked for his ID. He took to Facebook to decry his treatment, saying that there was no reason to stop him and that his stop was both unlawful and unjust. But many are taking issue with his harsh words for Taipei's boys in blue, girls in blue, as the case may be. And we've seen this week a little debate about policing here in Taiwan spark up. Uh, So we're going to take that debate into our own very studio and take it on to this segment right here. Uh, First, Gavin, what happened to the good minister? Apparently he was at the Taipei bus station, a transfer station, and he was with a friend. Apparently he was wearing flip-flops, torsier, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. Slippers. Slippers, yeah. Outdoor slippers. As, as, you know, you got to slip outside for a few minutes, go out with some slippers, but uh, he was suspicious, apparently. And a sports jacket. And a sports jacket. Apparently, Apparently police said that Lee and his companion were acting suspiciously, and Mm -hmm. I'm quoting this, because Lee was peering mm-hmm. at off-duty officers. Okay. As if he was up to no good. Giving them the heebie-jeebies. His slippers, his flip-flops <laughs> and his sports jacket on a Sunday afternoon. Never trust a guy in flip-flops, I guess. Anyway, so the police wandered over and said, that man looking a bit suspicious. Um, well, because they said, excuse me, sir, do you have your identification card? He said, no, I'm not showing you my identification card. This went roundabout for about five minutes. He then accused police of resorting to trickery because apparently they were trying to trick him into giving his ID card up. And he accused them of being in breach of the Grand Justice Interpretation number 535 concerning police checks. Because huh. apparently he thought this police check was contravening that particular legal point. Okay. The police said they weren't. The police said it was just a regular ID check. And so where this becomes national news is where he goes onto Facebook and he makes it national news, basically. Well, he turned around and said it's a police state. I mean, being asked for ID in a convenience store or outside a convenience store in a bus stop in a big city is hardly a police state, is it? That's my point on it. He could have showed him his ID, and he would have walked away quite happily in about a minute. 
That is also what uh, Taipei's police officials are saying. I think that they agree with you. They went public with their own version they of events. They basically said, basically, the, the former head of the National Police Agency, who is now the deputy new Taipei mayor, Ho Yo E, he defended the police, saying that the request for identification was carried out in line with current laws. Mm-hmm. There we go. The premier has also said, we can look into this. He's played it a bit cool on there, though he basically didn't really say very much. And several other people have come out and also said, well, you know, maybe he should have just shown them his ID card. Right. One could argue that he was annoyed that they didn't recognise him. Oh, yeah, it's true. <laughs> Don't you know who I am? I am the minister of the Hakka Affairs Council. Come well, course, on. You know, politi- this happens to politicians all over the world. They get, you know, they get a bit uppity, don't they, when people don't recognise them. So, guys... Uh, you know, we, we, we saw this debate play itself out both on TV and uh, on Facebook of all places. The fact that this has become such a hot button issue, uh, does that do, do, do you see this as having anything to do with Taiwan's very particular experience historically uh, with police and with uh, military rule? Mm, um, I think so, because, you know, I mean, it is sort of like being asked for your papers uh, you know, during the authoritarian period. I mean, Leonta is someone that grew up during the authoritarian period, so it does make sense that he did have this reaction. Although maybe it, isn't, it can be, in some extent, an overreaction. I mean, there is an issue, though, I, I do think, of, you know, of, of Taiwanese police asking for IDs when sometimes they actually don't have a legal right to. I mean, I've seen this myself in several occasions that actually had nothing to do with, like, you know, protests or anything like that, just on the street even. So, I mean, there's also the attitudes of the police's, you know, attitudes with the public. Um, I mean, there are also issues of trust that are particularly salient, for example, with regards to policing practices, uh, you know, issues of police accountability for officers that commit acts of violence and so forth. And so, you know, the police sometimes don't have the trust of the people. And, you know, I mean, going to so far as to say that the police state is, you know, actually kind of strange because, you know, authoritarian, during the authoritarian period, it was so much worse and, you know, people were being killed, which is not happening now. But it still is, is an invasion of privacy. I mean, that's my take on it. It was a, it was a statement made on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're not necessarily... We're holding him to a pretty high standard for Facebook posts. Mind you, you've got another head of state who makes posts on Twitter that we're meant to take seriously. There's always you can always find a parallel in American politics that reflects poorly on us. So that's 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 a cheap shot these days. Uh, Ting, does this furor surprise you at all, or or, or is uh, this something that makes sense to you? Um, I mean, I I think it definitely makes sense in that. During the martial law period, right, um, which is obviously not too long ago for many people living here. Um, the po- Are you old enough that you remember it all growing up in Taiwan? Uh, well, I did live through it. Right. Um, I but mean, you were I, pretty young. I was pretty young. So I I don't remember specifically getting stopped by the police myself, mm-hmm. right? Um, but this kind of, you know, these things happen all the time, right? And I think people um, kind of grew up used to the fact that, oh, you know, cops can just come into your karaoke box and just say okay everybody you know like stop singing everybody stand up show me your papers or show me your national id card we just want to make sure everything's okay right and i think people kind of kind of come to see that as sort of a normal part of daily life right even though um for you know everybody who knows um that's not the standards of you know human rights and privacy you know in in a Develop you know, rule of law kind of country, and so um, the uh, constitutional interpretation that um, Gavin was uh, referred to the five uh, number five thirty five that was not um, that was only in two thousand one when that happened, where um, the grand justices basically said, well, the police do have a right to um, to make these temporary you know sort of detainments or temporary checks. But they have to do it under, the, you know, a reasonable suspicion of some sort of crime happening, right? And that's, you know, somewhat parallel to the U.S. case um, where um, in Terry versus Ohio Supreme Court case, um, where the Supreme Court basically said, yes, the police, um, they do have a right to temporarily detain somebody on the streets, but there has to be a reasonable suspicion of um, crime that's about to happen or um, crime that has happened. Um, again, something you know, the reasonable standard is, you know, it, it's not it's not exact, right? And for these things, you're always looking at the situation, uh, you know, in every you know sort of on a case by case basis. With the current case, I, you know, I I think 
yeah, it, it's going to come down to whether or not somebody acting and looking like the minister was at the time at that place, whether or not that is a reasonable. There's a reasonable suspicion of something going on. Suspicious flip flops. Yeah, and I think there it's reasonable. Well, okay, I I think. Most people probably have the reaction of, "Well, what's the big deal? You just show them your national ID card, right? And and you'll be on your way." Um, you know, but I I do think that you know these cases kind of turn on on these people who are saying, "You know what? Like, I do have a right to refuse these kind of searches, right?" And so, um, you know, I I think in. The current case brought up this debate, and I think it's a good thing that people are thinking about this issue.、Hmm. All right, and we're going to wrap up on that point. Last up for the broadcast, here is the archaeology news. I was so excited about dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones, dem old dry bones that apparently belong to 17th century European explorers have been uncovered on Peace Island, just off Taiwan's northern coast. Giving us a new look at what life was like for those very early colonizers, Gavin. Yeah, this was believed to be one of the earliest European-style burials discovered in the Asia-Pacific region. The body was that of an adult male, and he was buried in a Catholic cemetery at the 17th-century Spanish settlement of San Salvador de Il Hermosa. <laughs> you got the you got the her there. Yeah, All right. And if you want to know where that place is, that place is now. Peace Island or Herping Dow off the coast of Geelong. Yeah, apparently the, the Spanish occupied this wee island between 1629 until 1642.、Mm. Now samples from the skeleton have been sent for analysis to investigate the man's age, ethnic origin, and health.、Mm-hmm. And apparently people are saying that it's the first time an old European grave has been uncovered in the Asia Pacific region in one piece. There we go. So, if you've seen pictures of this thing, the bones are very well preserved.、Yep. The guy's hands are kind of clasped in a sort of a religious pose, right there. But what's interesting is the, the cemetery that it was found. It was an old cemetery. They knew it was an old cemetery. But apparently, there's bodies from Europeans, local Taiwanese people, and people. Archaeologists are saying possibly people of African origin brought to the island as slaves are also in this cemetery. One interesting point made by researchers. Is that、uh, as opposed to other archaeological sites, whether we're talking about Han settlers or、uh, Japanese settlers, there really wasn't that much in the way of you know European items there. It 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 seems like this guy was really living quite a sparse life, not necessarily well provisioned, not necessarily uh, with uh, a lot to call his own, and、uh, that may be kind of a little bit of a window into. The way that these、uh, Spanish explorers were living at the time, not not coming with everything. Costco hadn't opened at the time. That's true. True, life was hard. Had he came back three hundred, four hundred years later. He could have gone to Costco. He did. He he was a ways from home. To、he、be was, fair, yeah, he a、yeah. little bit of a travel there. Uh, Brian, uh, talking to you before the show started, you're, you're no archaeology buff, but、uh, this does bring to mind some recent、uh, cinematic stuff going on.、Uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds a lot like Silence, the Scorsese film, which took place in Japan, but was actually filmed in Taiwan for、mm-hmm. budget reasons, which was you know about missionaries in. In Japan during you know during that time, so the, it, is, it is kind of ironic in that way because that that release wasn't too long ago.、So. Guerrilla marketing, perhaps. perhaps guerrilla marketing. Perhaps, maybe they really they, deep cover. That's right. Deep、marketing. cover guerrilla marketing. Yeah, <laughs> they've been planning this one for a while. Exactly. You know, four hundred years to be exact.、Mm, uh, Ting, are, are you an archaeology enthusiast、uh, in any way?、Um, no, I mean I am interested in the history, right? So,、mm-hmm. you know. Anything that brings more diversity and more color to the history of Taiwan, you know, to say that it's not, it doesn't belong to any one particular empire or any one particular, eth- you know, ethnic group.、Um, but you know, it is some, it, it is a place where people come and go.、Um, you know, I think it's a good thing.、Mm. What's also interesting about this is Taiwan's. It, it did raise the issue of archaeology and old things in Taiwan, historical things. I don't know for a fact in Geelong, there's lots of lots of archaeological areas and historical places that the governments have done nothing with.、Mm. I mean, there's a huge Qing Dynasty fort on a big hill, and several hills overlooking the city of Geelong. There's actually several Qing Dynasty forts,、mm-hmm. but they're not. They're all overgrown. They're all up on the mountains that are really difficult to get to, but they all actually exist there. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the city government or the, the central government actually made an effort 
you could actually make these places so people could go and see them. Mm-hmm. If you see what I mean? All right, so an interesting little piece of archaeology. Always fun to work in some archaeology news into the mix there. But that is just about going to do it for the broadcast portion of our show. Last up for the podcast today, as always, we have our bonus podcast story. Trying to keep things on the lighter side of the news to wrap things up in kind of a smiley, happy sort of way. Gavin, do you have smiley happy for us today? Yeah, I've got north-south divide. Okay, all right. Yep. North-south is... Taiwan divide. <coughs> yeah, yeah, of course. We're not talking the Mason-Dixon line, are we? No. No. Yes, this is the Taipei Department of Health. And they went out recently, because that's what they do. They go out and they do things, don't they? So they decided to do a survey to find out what drinks... These are like soft drinks, mm-hmm. handshake and tea shop. You go to a tea shop in Taiwan... Yep. You say, put all that in it with that tea, and they shake it up and they give it to you in a plastic cup with a straw. Dead simple. One of those type of drinks. An important thing for our health authorities to be paying attention to. And apparently the Taipei Department of Health found that us in the north, up here in Taipei, don't quite agree with those people that live down south on what's best to drink. Oh, yeah. And the health department said this was due to variations in weather and temperature. Mm-hmm. They apparently, And apparently the, the poll, which con- was conducted at drink stores across the island. Apparently 300 stores in the Taipei, New Taipei, Jilung, Jai, Tainan and Kaohsiung areas were quizzed about this. Okay. Now, here we go. What what are in the flavors? What are here in these go, flavors? Here we go. Hang on, shut up. <laughs> Make a drink. Here we go. Apparently 59.5% of people polled in the north favoured less sweet options when it came to drinks, compared with 55.3% of people in the south, while 79% of southerners preferred ice drinks, compared with only 54.4% of people in the north who actually like drinking ice drinks. Okay, so sweeter down south and icier down south as yeah, well. But green tea apparently is agreed on by both the people up north and the people down south. Well, who doesn't like green they, tea? They do. They all said, "Yeah, green teas are really good. Good idea." <laughs> so, br- bringing some national unity. Thank you, green tea. Yep. Uh, Brian, is any of your family from down south? Are you all? Yeah, yeah. Some my family. Um, so uh, do you do you see these? Uh, you know, you you pass one of your southern family members uh, a tea. They take one sniff and they pour it out because it's not sweet enough. It, it's not that extreme, but mm-hmm. it is kind of funny because you know the cultural stereotype is that uh, people from Tainan for from the south, you know, they eat sugary food, and that the north eats saltier food. And also, you know, the south is warmer, so maybe that's why they like the icier drinks. I don't know. My experience in the South definitely bears that out. Like touring, I've never had more sugar than the days I've spent touring Tainan. Mm, that's right. And that's interesting because another thing that came up in this poll, they also talked about calorie information, which I'm not going to even bother getting into. Because as far as I'm concerned, you drink what you want to drink, you eat what you want to drink, eat what you want to eat. There you go. But this poll did found that the popularity of unsweetened drinks has risen from 28.7% in 2014 to 35.8% last year, which I guess means that people aren't drinking as many sweet drinks as they used to drink. Huh. Okay, so we're losing our sweet teeth, sweet tooths here in Taiwan. Yeah, no, I actually do have a story about that. Um, I mean, so you go to you go to a drink shop, right? And then you know, it's it's a very particularly Taiwan thing where they ask you, oh, how much, what what sugar level you want in your drink, right? Um, so you go in and it's like. Oh, oh my gosh, I have to like decide the size of the cup, how much ice, how much milk. It's how like much an sugar. exam. There's so many steps. Right. And, you know, so many combinations. And, um, you know, so usually typically it's you want full sugar, you want 75%, you want 50% half sugar, or you want, you know, 25% quarter sugar, right? And a lot of, you know, I think there's more and more places where you go in and, you, and, you know, they ask you for a sugar level. And then they'll tell you the recommended sugar level that we have is the half sugar. Huh. And then I'm just scratching my head going, well, so why don't you just call that the full sugar? <laughs> right? Because you're, you're saying, you're saying we're, we're making this drink with mm-hmm. the level of sugar and ice that we put into it. But we're actually telling you it's better if you have it half of what we thought the original recipe should be. Huh. Right. So maybe the full sugar should be double sugar. Right. I mean, I mean, it's it's a semantics thing, but <laughs> it's, it's just it's just kind of odd to me, right? Deep philosophical point, right? But I I think it has to do with this trend of people wanting maybe less sugar in their drinks over time, oh. right? Originally, when the recipe came out, it was full sugar. That's how much mm-hmm. they sugar they added to cater to the taste at the time. But maybe mm-hmm. over time, people now order half sugar, quarter sugar a lot more than they used to. It doesn't matter what you like, whether you like sweet drinks or unsweetened drinks. This is quite staggering. This threw me, apparently. 
This was the Taipei City Health Department again, basically said. The island's handshaken drinks market is estimated to be worth 2.6 billion US dollars annually. That does not surprise me at all. That's a huge... Just handshaken drinks. And apparently about 1.2 billion cups are sold a year at those handshaken drink places all over the island. Jeez. I know. This is big business, everybody. 2.6 billion US dollars, not Taiwan dollars, US dollars. Uh, so I just did it on my phone, and that's apparently 52 drinks per year. So I guess it's kind of reasonable. One drink per week. That's 23 million people, and everyone drink every one of them. Well, obviously, this is in, in practicality. That's right, not yeah. happen, but on a, if you're looking at it mathematically, everybody in Taiwan drinks 52 of these sugary drinks a year. It's I wonder a, how healthy that is. Not healthy. Not Well, I don't want to get on the bad side of these tea guys because clearly they have a lot of clout. Well, yeah, but you know, make sure you get the half sugar. That's just that's yeah. Then you'll be fine. Nothing Why to worry you about. Buy the half sugar. You're going to pay the same price for the full sugar. Half half sugar. That's that's a uh, twenty six per year. Then my twelve day. All right. On that note, we're going to leave it there. That is it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, around about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, the ICRT app. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Goodbye. I'm now going to get a drink from a drink store. You I'm, earned it. I'm, I'm going for full sugar, though. Full sugar. All right. You're going to up those numbers for us people in the north. Also joined by Che Ting A. Thank you, Ting. Thanks always. And thank you, Brian Hugh. Good night. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.